Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period. But things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. You've been listening to Rumination's show, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs, and our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Due to the coronavirus restrictions, I'm interviewing from home via Zoom. Uh, I'd like to welcome Christine to the show. Hi, Christine. Hi, Bill. How are you? Uh, Christine's a member of Al-Anon Family Groups and she'll be sharing her journey of recovery from family disease of alcoholism and tell how Al-Anon has helped her cope with the effect of someone else's drinking. Uh, So Christine, we usually start talking about family and growing up and things like that. So what was your family like, uh, family of origin like? Uh, Very chaotic. I was was actually born on Norfolk Island and um, my mother had to go to to Norfolk we lived on they lived on Lord Howe Island and my mother was 40 when I was conceived I was the fifth child um, she had to she took two of my sisters to Norfolk Island with her um, was away for nine months and um, during that time my brother and another sister were left on Lord Howe Island with a with a family um, and went at that during that time, apparently my father was drinking and having an affair, so that was sort of the the thing that I was born into. So the family was, my mother was really angry, and my father was um, a drinker and and um, not not really um, faithful to my mother. So that was this, that was the family that I was born into. I came back to that. So. Um, it was very chaotic. I refer to it as a battleground. And um, mum was quite ill after I was born. So one of my sisters actually brought me up. It must have been very isolated in it a small was, community. Yeah, It was. It was post-war. And um, my mother and father had lived in Hong Kong and been evacuated out of Hong Kong when the Japanese invaded. So... Um, my father was a very, they were English, they came from Biddeford and uh, my father was a very um, intelligent, well-educated man and my mother was a beautiful woman. Um, so they landed on this, this isolated island and they were outsiders, very much outsiders. Um, so life was, particularly for my mother, was very, very difficult. Mm. Uh, and as I said, she was physically ill as well. So life yeah. was tough. Right. Uh, so how did you get on with your siblings? 
Um, well, I was the youngest, so I was never, I was always <laughs> told to, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to do things with them. I was always tagging along and I was always the nuisance. So right. apart from my, my, the sister who virtually brought me up, she sort of used to drag me along and convince the other kids to let me come. So it, it was a battleground. I had to fight to survive. Um, there was a lot of neglect. I was neglected. Um, and yeah, life life was tough, but we did have a lot of fun. I must say, we Lord Howe Island in those days we didn't wear shoes. We we just disappear for the day, um, you know. And we did have a lot of fun and did lots of pretty dangerous things. But um, life in in other ways was really good. Yeah, I think a lot of kids did back in those days. There was a lot of freedoms that I I remember. Yes, it was yeah, it was it was fun. I was sort of look back at some of the things we did. I've actually been back to Lord Howe Island and seen some of the caves that we climbed through and it's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so what was schooling like for you then? Um, school, I started school on Lord Howe Island, um, but then we moved to Canberra. We moved quite a bit during my childhood. Um, we moved to Canberra and, of course, we flew into Sydney on, on a Catalina and I saw a bus and said, oh, that's a house on wheels. I, was, <laughs> I went to school in Canberra and I was terrified. I'd never seen so many people, let alone kids. So, again, the sister who brought me up used to come. The high school was connected to the primary school. She'd come down and check that I was okay. So I was bullied a lot. Kids picked on me a lot. And because we'd lived on Lord Howe Island, we got sick a lot, you know, measles, mumps. We just went down with everything. So, um, yeah, life, life again was, was a struggle. But, again, lots of fun. Okay. So could you make friends at school or was that difficult? Um, I did make friends at school. Yeah, I did. Um, I was, I was um, not many, but I did have some friends, yeah. Okay. Were you a good student? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. I was always top of the class or second in the class. Yeah, I loved learning. My father, as I said, was a, a very intelligent man and um, huge general knowledge and very, you know, um, very interesting man. So I guess I got my interest um, in learning from him. Yeah. Did you use uh, learning as an escape from the family? Yes, I think I did. Oh, well, I just, I disappeared into, I used to read a lot. Um, and I, I remember I was Anne of Green Gables, you know, I was part of the um, Secret Seven and the fame, whatever the thing, oh, five. Five, yeah. yeah. I, I was them. I used to escape into books and I would become the characters because it was, it was, uh, it was painless and, um, yeah. And fun, yeah. So, did you form close friendships with people outside the family? Not really, not really, um, because I would form friendships where I went to other people's houses. People, my friends didn't come to our house. Um, my father tended to, if there was any money in the house, he would spend it. So there was never enough money. And my poor old mum used to have to struggle to pay the bills and um yeah it was as I said it was it was not a really 
friendly place, I thought, to bring friends. So I would, yeah, I would go to other people's houses. I think I was ashamed of my home. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Um, children of alcoholics are ashamed of their families and what goes on. Yep. So did your dad drink at home? Um, yes, he did. He was actually, he used to, from Lord Howe Island, he learnt to do the old home brew. Because we didn't have, have any money, he used to brew his own. So um, we've got lots of funny stories about Dad and his home brew and things blowing up. And <laughs> but, uh, yes, he did drink at home. So what are the funny stories? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was this one, one time on Lord Howe Island, he went down to this woman and they'd, done a, they'd made a home brew and they tapped it too soon and Dad... Because there were no, there were about two cars on the island when we were there. Um, so Dad used to ride his bike everywhere, as everyone else did, and he was coming home up the road. We could see him, and he was burping, and all this froth was coming out. <laughs> as he burped, it was like this froth was <laughs> coming out of his mouth. So I mean, that's one of the family stories about Pop. We used to call him Pop, um, Pop, and his home brew. So yeah. <laughs> All oh, right. So did things change when you went into secondary school? It's usually when you get into your teens, problems start happening. So well, was that a more problematic part of your life? In the, well, in the meantime, we'd moved to Mount Gambia where I really, I really, I was actually in the last year of primary school, I was actually voted the most popular girl in the class. I really sort of blossomed for some reason in Mount Gambia. But then we, as I went into my first year of high school, we moved to Adelaide. So I went into my first year of high school knowing no one and having to make friends and um, that, was, that, was, yeah, that was very difficult because everyone else, of course, had, had, you know, a lot of them had been through kinder together. So here am I, the odd one out again. So I had to really work hard to make friends. Yeah. So moving house a lot, did you, did you own your own house or were you renting? No, we rented. We rented, yeah. yeah. We always rented. Was that difficult for you, not having a sort of a safe space, your own space? Look, I think I just adjusted to it. I really did. I think you just adjust to moving because it's part of what, um, it's part of, you know, I was brought up to children are seen and, and not heard. So I didn't have a voice in any of that. It just happened. Um, I think my father was doing geographicals. Um, yeah. life, wasn't, life was pretty tough for him. I think, you know, he, as I said, he was um, a very urbane man and he had these kids and this wife. Um, so life, I mean, life must have been pretty hard for him, I think, now. I can see that now, that it must have been difficult for him. Yeah. He certainly, um, I can never remember him showing any affection or uh, he was a very cold man. Yep. So what about your mum? Was she finding it increasingly difficult with the growing growing kids to cope? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the memories I had, I was thinking, was when we lived in Mount Gambier, again, it was like this sort of honeymoon period. When we lived in Mount Gambier, my mum used to spend Saturday afternoon cooking and all of my, my sisters and my brother and even 
me would roll up with our friends and literally the, the table would be covered in cooking and we just, you know, go through like locusts. <laughs> but it was such a warm, lovely environment. Um, but I can only ever remember it happening in Mount Gambier for some reason. Um, I can't remember it once we got to Adelaide. It's all, all sort of changed because we were teenagers. Yeah, the teenage yeah. years. So. Yeah. so did your dad's drinking progress? Did it get worse? It, it really didn't. That's why I'm a, a bit loath to say that he's an alcoholic. Um, it, it sort of was, was quite, yeah, stable over the years. It didn't really get worse. Yeah. Did he have a change of um, personality when he drank or was he? He could be quite explosive and angry and I was quite fearful of that. Yeah. And, yeah, like an alcoholic, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the personality change is certainly um, scares kids, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah. So going to high school then, it was more difficult for you to make friends, but did you continue to be academically good? Yes, I did. I did until I reached leaving and... Um, I look back on it now, there was a friend at school and I used to go, their, their parents used to take me camping. We were really good friends. And she and I used to take it in turns between coming first and second each term, each exam. And when I got to my leaving, my father wanted me to go on and study. I failed. I failed my leaving. Wow. Why was that? Oh. <laughs> I say I would say that I sabotaged myself and I sabotaged him as well. It was probably to get back at him. I think now I look back on it now and I, I think probably it was to um, get back at my father for not loving me the way I wanted to be loved. Right. And how what what impact did that have on you on your life? Um, well, in I was in the days that I was brought up, you are, you went to school and you, and you either became a nurse or a teacher or you know, and then you got married and lived happily ever after. Um, so it didn't really impact me. I, I, I went off and got a job, um, which I hated. <laughs> but then I eventually fell into um, dental nursing, which I loved, and I actually qualified as a, as a I became a senior dental nurse at a, at a, a really good practice in Adelaide. Okay. Uh, so what about social life um, and relationships, sort of late teens? Did, were you able to form close relationships with people? Probably not, but certainly relationships. And I must admit, when, when I reached about 18 or 19, I just went wild. I, I started partying and drinking and, um, yeah, really... Um, I moved into an apartment, a flat, with a friend in Adelaide and uh, I partied big time. Did you ever think you might have become like your dad? Was your drinking ever a problem? Not really, because I was having too much fun. Yeah. <laughs> As we do. <laughs> no, I really... It, 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 I mean, I look back now and think that an alcoholic was someone who, you know, had a brown bottle in a... In the gut bag, yeah, yeah, yeah. bag. I had no idea about alcoholism until I, I came into Al-Anon. Yeah. Okay. So, well, listen, we might take a short break there. 
Ah, our first song today is uh, Flame Trees by Sarah Blasco. Kids are driving Saturday afternoon Just pass me by I'm just saying Love 
you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us. Like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll find details about the Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Alternatively, you can just call the 3CR office on 03-9419-8377 and leave us a message. I'm talking with Christine and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alan and family groups. So Christine, you're in Adelaide, you're partying. So did you end up getting married? Um, not in Adelaide. I was actually going out with a guy and he joined Qantas and moved to Sydney and um, he was first love of my life and I was I, so I applied with ANSET and um, I was going to go to Sydney to live as well but I ended up being based in Melbourne and um, I just seemed to go from one disastrous relationship to another and then I met my first husband who when we eventually got married his his father actually begged me not to marry him but I did. What, why was that? That's a strange thing to say. Because I was virtually hardwired, I think, to go into destructive relationships from from you know from my family of origin, from my the way I was I was brought up. Um, I'd been out with a couple of guys who were really nice guys, but I found them quite boring. I, they weren't interesting. I used to go out with guys who were you know I'd formed destructive relationships. And what do you call a destructive relationship? Well, it was a relationships full of abuse. There was no respect. Um, and the, ultimately, I think, again, because of my father, um, they usually ended up turning me over with it for another female. It was always, it, that was a pattern in my life. The men in my life would always end up with another female and I'd end up brokenhearted. It just happened again and again. So how was your, your first marriage then? 
uh, very destructive, very, um, he was a con man and we were always being evicted and um, I ended up leaving him because we were getting death threats. I had two little boys by this stage um, and we were getting death threats and I went to see a solicitor and he just said, pack, go home, pack your bags and get out. So um, I left. So how long did that marriage last, Approx? It was 10 years. 10 years, okay. So you're a single mum, two kids, must have been difficult. Very difficult because that's when, um, that was when my first first ex-husband really became very vicious and there was lots of um, very unpleasant, very nasty um, things that happened and the family court would, would not, uh, he, he really is an amazingly, um, what's the word, believable con man. So, good, um, good con man, yeah. So I ended up with egg on my face every time until I, I finally decided to um, play him at his own game. And uh, it was like a puff of smoke. But, uh, yeah, and that was at that stage I'd, I'd been on my own for 12 months trying to, to um, cope with two little kids and the dramas that were happening. And that was when I met my second husband, who was the alcoholic. Right. <laughs> so what was the attraction to, to the alcoholic? Um, look, he's a, he's a wonderful, he was my father. He was, uh, he's tall, he's intelligent, he incredibly intelligent, uh, very caring. Uh, when he's not, you know, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. When he's not drinking, he's a wonderful man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to reconcile, isn't it? Um, so what sort of a drinker was he? He was a binge drinker. Sorry, binge? Binge, yeah, he's yeah. binge. okay. So it was very hard in some ways to deal with because it was very confusing. The messages were so mixed that he could be so lovely one minute and then go on a binge and turn into this uh, razor-sharp um, tongue, just like my father. At, at this point, did you find yourself realising that you'd married somebody like your father or didn't you realise it? I was so busy at that stage trying to... Um, with what was going on because once my my second husband came on the scene, um, my first husband, that was when it really got very, very nasty. Um, for an example, he had um, my second husband beaten up with an iron bar by a couple of guys. So, I mean, it was really quite, it was a very violent time and I was fighting to try and, you know, keep these two little kids um, protected. And um, no, I was well, that stage. I was insane. I was just insane, trying to trying to survive. Yeah. So how did that work out in the end? It sounds a very difficult period of your life. It was incredibly difficult. Um, I guess um, I I decided to fight him on his own level, and I did something that um, I'm not going to comment on. That um, he realised that I was prepared to do that, and he. He virtually disappeared, um, yep. so life became easier. So with your second husband then, was it a, a good relationship with alcohol spoiling it? At that stage, I, he um, introduced me to fine wine. Like, he, he drinks, um, we drink fine wine. So he introduced me to 
wine. So I guess um, I'm a really good cook. So we started to entertain um, and life was life sort of bounced along in between all these dramas. I was working. Um, he was working. We bought a house. We were renovating it. Life was just so busy. And, yeah, I, I started, like a lot of people, drinking with him. I thought that's what you did. But luckily, I would reach a point where I would virtually be ill and I'd have to go to bed. And, um, yeah, that was when I, I sort of started to twig that perhaps there was some problems. He'd, he'd keep drinking and, and reach blackout stage. Okay. So did you realise he was blacking out at that point? Yeah. Um, I remember we'd finished the renovation and um, I remember uh, he's he's a... He was a, an executive with an air, quite a high executive with a, with one of the airlines, and um, he'd taken a package, and we'd finished the renovation. And I remember waking up one morning um, and just looking around at this stunning house. It was all, I guess, coming from you know quite poor family. It was all they ever wanted was a beautiful house and whatever. But I remember waking up one morning and thinking, "This is this is not." what life is meant to be. I'm so excruciatingly unhappy. And I actually left. I left for 12 months. Um, and I'd, I'd sort of, in, the, in that time, I'd, that was when I'd reached out to Al-Anon and started going to Al-Anon, um, but then would stop. He'd, he'd promised that if, as if being a binge drinker, he'd stop drinking and everything would be fine. But um, I realised then that, you know, Life was not what I wanted it to be. I was so unhappy. So I left um, and we were apart for 12 months and he moved to Sydney and I ended up moving up to Sydney with him. And we lived up there for 10 years. We had a really good life up there. Travelled overseas, used to go to France every year buying wine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And... um, yeah, life was... I went to Al-Anon up there a few times when, when life became a bit unbearable. Um, but then we ended up moving. My son, one of my sons had my first grandchild and we moved. My ex-husband had been brought up at Mount Macedon and so we ended up buying this huge property up there. Um, and he was supposed to sort of semi-retire, but he became more and more busy and um, that was when I... I started going to Mooney Ponds became my home group and um, that was when I, I went into Al-Anon literally on my knees, absolutely on my knees and I knew then that I had to stay in Al-Anon. There was nothing else that, um, you know, that worked. So that was when I virtually came back to Al-Anon. Yeah. So how long had it been since you went to your first Al-Anon meeting and sort of came came in for seriously? Oh, gosh, it was probably, um, probably about 10 years, 10 yeah. years. Okay. I, I went to the, um, the old Brighton meeting and there were these wonderful women there, these older women. Um, that was the first, one of the first meetings I ever went to and, oh, gosh, they were, they were just, you know, real old-timers and so wise. Um, and that, that, was, that was, yeah, 10 years prior to me, really. And that, that memory of those women, I think, brought me back to Al-Anon because I remember this woman giving a personal story and it was, 
it was so dire and they were laughing. <laughs> it was just like, you know, it, the story was incredible and she was laughing at, you know, how the things that she was doing to try and get her son to stop drinking and it was just crazy. And that's what I remembered, those those wise, wise women and that's what brought me back eventually and that's what the light and the laughter is what made me say this is the only thing that works um, and I have to face the fact that the, the um, you know, the common denominator in all of this is me. I need to heal me. Yeah, one of the things about, you know, recovery programs is you always hear somebody who's got a worse story from you than you yes. and they're always coping better than you are and it makes you realise that, yeah, it works. Your situation isn't quite as dire as, dire as uh, it could be. Yeah. So what was it like coming back into Al-Anon then for somebody who'd been in and out for a while? What, what sort of made you take it seriously? I had ended up with uh, with cancer, and um, uh, they wanted to give me radiotherapy. And I'm very much into, um, you know, meditation and alternate sort of. And I said no. So I decided that I'd do a lot of research into my body. And I'm convinced that this this disease, this family disease of alcoholism, not only kills the alcoholic, but it kills the people who live with with them because of the stress. And what it does to your body. Um, so I knew that I had to, like like a lot of people, I'd been to psychiatrists and psychics and you know what. Um, I mean, I even went to one psychiatrist who said it was my fault that my husband was drinking. <laughs> of course, I, I was wonderful because my mother taught me to be a martyr. So I wear, wore the hair shirt. That was a beauty for me. It was like, oh well, it's it's my fault, you know. I. Um, I'll have to be more and more of a martyr. So I, I knew that I needed to learn about the family disease of alcoholism. I, as I said before, I had no idea about alcoholism. And I was just a victim floating from one drama disaster to another. And I wanted it to, I wanted it to stop with me. I wanted my boys, my sons, who'd been through all this trauma, I wanted... I don't know. I wanted a different relationship for them. So I knew that I had to commit to Al-Anon. Yeah. So did your dad ever stop drinking? No. Mm. No. no. Did you ever try and tell your mum about Al-Anon? No. No. I did tell one of my sisters about it and she accused me of going to a cult. So yeah. I learnt to um, not share um, I'm very, I'm very, um, what's the word? I, I'm very careful about with whom I share about Al-Anon. I had a friend at Mount Macedon and she came for lunch one day and she was crying about her daughter. And then I met her again and she was still crying and I just quietly said to her, I go to this, this group called Al-Anon, which is for families of alcoholics. If you'd like to come with me. I leave at, you know, 10 o'clock every Thursday. And I left it at that. And she did eventually ring me about a month later and say, can I come with you? So, yeah. I'm, I'm, when I first got Alan on, it was like I wanted to tell the world, like everything else, you know. But now I'm, I'm much more um, circumspect about yeah. who I share. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so we might take another short break there. Uh, our next song is Edith Vale. 
by Bex Sykes off her new single uh, released just recently in 2020. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio, on live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Christine about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So, Christine, you, you made it into Al-Anon and you're sort of, ser- I guess, serious this time. Yep. So, well, what different things did you do in Al-Anon that you hadn't done before? I stayed. And... Um you know, just just knew that uh, I needed to keep coming back, as they say. And uh, I also knew that I'd tried to do it in isolation. Um, I knew that I had to, as they say, put my bum on the seat in meetings um, and started working the program. I had a... Actually, it was the woman who introduced me to Alan on many, many years prior. And she sort of became my... I never asked her to become a sponsor, but but she was my sponsor. Um, So I started working the steps and um, I did a step, you know, worked through, did a step four, five. I've done quite a few step four, fives um, and started seriously working the program. So what's the value of having a sponsor? Well, I guess it's just someone to... As a sounding board, a sounding board, really. It's just someone to talk to. Um, and the, the, the alcoholism is a very isolating disease. It's a, it's a disease of secrets. Um, we tend to live in denial. Like, you know, our family was, as I said, mum and dad were English. So outside the house, one presented really well and spoke well, but behind... Once the doors were closed, it was a battleground. But you were taught to um, put on that face and to stiff up a lip, yeah. not, not to talk to people. Don't yeah. talk to people. It's a, as I said, a fa- it's a disease of secrets. Yeah. The other thing is that in a family, when you're growing up in a family with alcoholism, um, the, the skills you learn in the family aren't applicable outside the family because nobody would tolerate them. No, exactly not. And as I said, I had to, I had to fight virtually to survive. So um, to scream, to be heard, uh, literally, you can imagine five, you know, five kids fighting and um, yeah. So as you say, a lot of those skills, well, yeah, they were skills, survival skills as a child, but they're certainly not appropriate as an adult. And that's what, I think I learned to react in the world um, and Al-Anon is teaching me, I often say, to grow up and to act in the world, um, yeah. not to be reactive. Yeah. So did your husband stop drinking? Second no. husband? No, we, I eventually left him. Unfortunately, he was also um, suffering from depression. Um, he'd had a, had, had a horrendous childhood, horrendous and um, then was sent to a Catholic boarding school. So his upbringing was fairly horrendous. So um, he drinks um, to 
forget the pain as a lot of alcoholics do. Yeah. So did your relationship with your kids change once you got into Eleanor? Very much. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm a very different person and a very different mother to when I was before Al-Anon. Yeah, I mean, I, I refer to, I often share in meetings that, you know, I look at my life before Al-Anon and after Al-Anon and the difference is amazing. So what were the good changes? Oh, gosh. I guess, I, as I said, I grew up. I'm learning to grow up. I'm learning to... Um, take responsibility for me. And um, as I said, I was always a victim. Um, and and to mind my own business, that's probably one of the yeah. things that I've learned to zip it, to zip it, um, with, particularly with my kids and my grandkids. And to say, you know, when I go to, to say something or give advice, a lot of the slogans pop into my head and um, I've learned to keep my mouth shut. That's one, probably one of the biggest things that I've learned in Al-Anon. And to, to really say whose business is it? Is it, um, you know, my high power, their high power, or mine or theirs? So, um, yeah, that's, and that's another thing that's really Al-Anon has given me. I've always had a fairly deep spiritual belief, but um, they refer to in Al-Anon as the higher power. And I'd been brought up in a... Um, High Church of England, so the word God was pretty scary to me. But a higher power is is a wonderful, gentle, to me, a wonderful, gentle thing. And um, quite often nature for me is is my higher power if I'm I'm really struggling. Like at the moment, I go for an hour's walk and um, I talk to the magpies, which is a bit nutty, but um, that can be my higher... That's my higher power for me. That's mine. Um, It may not be anyone else's, but it's mine. Yeah. And it's wonderful to be to be given that that higher power, and that's what Alanon's given me back—a a spiritual belief. Yeah. The other thing I think twelve-step programs give you is a respect for other people's right to be different. So, you know, did that? Did you find that too that you're able to let other people be themselves? Yes. Yes. Particularly the alcoholic. Um, I learned that it's a, it's a disease. Alcoholism is a disease and nothing, I, I didn't cause it, can't cure it, can't control it. So nothing, I, I spent many, many years trying to stop him drinking because I believe that if he stopped drinking, we would ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. But I now, now allow him, um, I respect him and I have enough compassion for him to allow him to, you know, live his life. He's with a new partner and they they both drink and they smoke. Um, that's his choice. I have to, you know, give him the um, dignity of living his own life. So we, we're really good friends. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good uh, opportunity, isn't it, to um, you know, to let people just be themselves and, and I think the benefit that I've found in that is that you're able to be yourself as well without feeling obligated to all these people. You don't have to have this other face for everybody. You can just be yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a relief to be able to, I don't know. Um, as I said, I always felt a victim and felt I was a people pleaser. I was hyper vigilant. I was the, my role in the family was sort of to, to step in between and be the healer and, um, 
it's so lovely to be able to give up those roles. It was exhausting, um, you know, trying to live other people's lives as well as my own. So it's really nice to um, to be able to just get on with my life. And, and uh, look, in lots of ways, it's been painful. Um, looking at looking back at, at the family disease and the way a lot of the skills, as we said before, that, that I learnt weren't appropriate. So in order to um, learn new skills, it's, it can be very difficult and very painful. But my God, is it worth it? Because my life now is so peaceful. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, the other thing that um, coming in program is you look at your resentments and your fears. So how's that changed in your, in your life, you know, understanding resentments and the effect they have on you? Oh, I, well, I'm a firm believer, you know, with, with my belief that uh, resentments and anger and that's, that's internalised and that makes you ill. So um, now I'm, I'm very quick at, you know, doing a step three or four or five or working the program to look at, you know, what, if, if I've got a resentment, what's that mirroring me? If I resent you, what's that saying about me? What can I do to heal me? to get rid of this resentment. Um, so I'm very quick to, um, I'm very aware. That's, that's what Eleanor does for you. It makes you aware of, of your, and again, we were taught not to feel. So learning about my feelings has been a huge journey and recognising those feelings now. Um, so it's wonderful being aware of, of the feeling and then being able to take an action to, to resolve those feelings. Yeah. So have you, do you talk about this with your kids? Um, my eldest son and I do. He's very much into, um, into all, all that sort of stuff. He's actually a paramedic and um, is suffering from PTSD. And uh, so, yeah, I do. I talk to him about it. My youngest son, not so much. He's very angry and, um, yeah, no, not so much my youngest son. I find it difficult. I would love to and I try to sort of find ways to do it, but he's very closed, so I don't go there. Right. Um, are you close to your siblings? Um. Look, I probably am. Um, well, 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 actually, I've got a brother I don't I don't talk to. Um, he was very he was the only boy, so he was quite spoiled, and um, he hurts me too much. There's been quite a few things that have happened where he has really hurt me, um, and I just reached a point where I thought I I can't deal with him and he's very he is incredibly angry um so he just he you know is like volatile like the alcoholic and I just it's toxic for me I don't go there I miss him and I send him thought you know kind thoughts but I I don't see him or talk to him um I've got two sisters remaining and we are pretty close we have the odd sort of Barney or one of my sisters is a rageaholic she's a control freak and we've had a couple of of uh, uh actually it was this time last year we were in Broome and she lost her temper and absolutely ripped into me and but luckily I didn't react and I um 
use my Eleanor and um, talked to her and said that I felt that she was being um, unfair and abusive and that I, I didn't like that and um, I wouldn't put up with it. So, yeah, I, I do have pretty good relationships with my two remaining sisters. Yeah, that's good. So how different is your life now after Eleanor? You've been you said you've been in Eleanor for I think um, about twelve years or so. So how different is your life now? Oh, cheese and chalk. Um, my life now is peaceful, mostly, not all the time, but peaceful. But I guess the difference is that in Alan now, I, as I said, I'm aware of things when they happen and I have now have the tools to deal with, with life. Um, you know, I can, I, can go, I can go to a meeting, I can do a reading, I can ring an al friend, I can go for a walk, um, I can be, I'm aware of my body, I eat well, I sleep well. Um, so... Oh, my life is so different. It's it's really, I live on my own. I've um, moved into a, a retirement complex, um, so I feel much safer than I was living in a huge house on my own. I'm I'm just in control of my. I feel like I'm in control of my life, and I'm I'm making good choices for me, which I didn't do before Alanon. Yeah. So often we sort of ask you know, what would you say to somebody who was in your position who, you know, didn't know about Al-Anon? Do you, do you try and let people know? You, you mentioned before that you're reluctant to do that, but um, what would you tell somebody who, you know, may be going through what you're going through about the benefits of a program like Al-Anon? Look, I'm a believer that I came and went in Al-Anon because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Um, you know, the teacher appeared when I was ready and the teacher was Al-Anon. So, as I said, I would probably give them some, some literature, possibly, um, and leave it at that. It's, it really is like the, like the alcoholic. People have to reach their rock bottom before they really reach out. So, as I said to you, when I first got it, I was pushing it down everyone's throats. I wouldn't do that now. I would be much more circumspect about um, sharing um, certainly yesterday I was at a meeting and there was a woman who was her first meeting and I did say to her, please keep coming back. It's the only thing that works. So, um, yeah, it, it works. Okay. Thank you. Um, if anybody's interested in contacting Alan on Family Groups, you can phone them on 1300 252 or you can go online at alanon.org.au. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Christine for joining me and sharing her Alan Family Group's recovery experience with us. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be highlighting another 12-step recovery program. Thanks for listening and stay tuned now for Alternative. And to take us out, we've got Fall Into My Arms by Nagare of her Blastoma album. Enjoy. Than if I was strong, 
I'm falling in and out of love But you see I'm moving so slow And if I were to break in two And these words that I wrote for you Escape from me like embers Dancing round a fire that is slowly burning out I would tell you to hold on to it I'd tell you to slow down to stay Just the simplest touch leaves a burn on me The simplest touch leaves a burn on me I'd tell you to hold on to it I'd tell you to slow down to stay Just the simplest touch leaves a burn on me The simplest touch leaves a burn on me Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial Podcast. Streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. <laughs> 